Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast for September 2013. This is episode 30. Yes, we are the big 3-0. My name is Mike McGinnis, and with me as always is my co-host, Ken Gagne. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm doing well, Ken. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. You know, it occurs to me that this is the first usual episode that we have done since Kansas Fest. Yeah, it's been a while. It's uh, getting a, I'm, I'm feeling a little rusty here on the mic. Yeah. However, we have not been idle. We actually released two episodes last month. One was the Kansas Fest special Open Antic Hertz that we collaborated mm-hmm. with the guys from Antic. And yep, a lot of fun. One megahertz. They're great guys. Glad to have them on the show. Yep. And we also released a very special interview with Steve Wozniak, which we also released in two formats. Video and audio. That's right. We're making our first foray into video podcasting. We apologize to anybody who was not expecting that 300 meg file in your iTunes feed, but we hope you enjoyed it. Well, we definitely had a lot of fun making it. Yeah, that was a remarkable experience. We actually got to sit in a room, just the th- two of us, with Steve Wozniak for like a half an hour. Yep, and uh, it was kind of nice because he's, I think, I think, good enough at doing these interviews and public speaking and things that he can recognize a couple of giggling fanboys and just sort of take the take the interview where he where he wants it to go. And and I think it, uh, I think we got some good stuff from him. Yeah, I don't know how much of it was necessarily original. He does love to ramble about the old days, but mm-hmm. you know, we were happy to just put the mic in front of him and let him talk. Yeah, it was nice. He definitely did have some nice things to say about visiting us at Kansas Fest this year too, and that was. That was good to hear. Yeah. Now, looking at our website statistics, it occurs to me that that episode, unsurprisingly, was rather popular among our Open Apple listeners. We may have picked up a few new listeners, and this may be their first regular episode. So maybe we should take a moment to introduce ourselves. Okay. So who are you, Mike? Such a an existential question, Ken. Have you ever wondered why we're here? No, not that existential. <laughs> So, Mike, tell us just very briefly, what's up with you? My name is obviously Mike McGinnis, as I said. I, uh, I've been doing this podcast with you since the very beginning back in February 2011. My experience with the Apple II, however, goes back all the way to 1981 uh, with my very first Apple II Plus. And I've been with the machine. There was a gap in there of about seven or eight years when I was in the military. It's kind of hard to lug an Apple II around from duty station to duty station. Yeah, there was kind of a gap in getting back in to it mm, late 90s or so was an interesting experience. My first Kansas Fest was in 2005. I had a wonderful time and I've was I've been back every year except 2008 because well, I had to get married that year. Oh, is that when that happened? Yeah, that's when that happened. And I also write the occasional article for a magazine you might have heard of Ken called juice.gs. I'm familiar with it. Yeah, and I, in my spare time when I'm not taking apart my Apple II Plus and putting it back together again, I scan doc, some documentation. Uh, you can find some of that stuff at apple2scans.net. So, Ken, tell me about you. Well, thank you, sir. That was an excellent summary. I will try to be as efficient and succinct. Why, thank you. Uh, my name is Ken Gagne. I came out around the same time as the Apple II itself, and I don't remember ever not having an Apple IIe growing up. We upgraded to the GS in 88. And I still have that machine to this day. I only ever upgraded to the Mac because I went to college and they weren't teaching on an Apple II in the computer science department. I did run a BBS on my Apple II through the mid-90s, which I shut down when I went to college, which after watching BBS the documentary sounds like a pretty typical experience for quite a few sysops. Mm-hmm. 
I went to my first Kansas Fest in 98, and this year was my 16th consecutive K-Fest. It was my wow. first time in 12 years not being on the K-Fest committee. I was happy to have served in that capacity for more than a decade. About 10 years ago, a little bit less than, I inherited the role of editor of Juice GS, of which I was previously a staff member. It is the longest-running and currently only print publication dedicated to the Apple II. And I'm happy to have seen it grow over the last decade. So you have heard of it? Only tangentially. I see. With you, Mike, I've been doing this podcast since February of 2011. It has been a blast, and I have my Apple II on my desk at my office at MIT, which is my day job. By night, I teach at Emerson College in Boston in the publishing department. I do some freelance writing for Computer World magazine. And other assorted sundries here and there. But yeah, the Apple II has permeated almost every aspect of my life, whether it's podcasting, writing, publishing, teaching, event management. Uh, this has been where it all begins and where it continues to be. So I'm very grateful to be a member of this community, and I hope that our listeners, whether they are longtime users, nostalgic visitors, or the like, are happy to be here. And we hope that you get something out of this show, such as the latest news, reviews, interviews, and updates and how-tos. And if you're new to this podcast, uh, obviously this is, like I said, episode number 30, which means that we have plenty of hours of Apple II entertainment that you can listen to. I would advise maybe skipping over the first three or four <laughs> episodes. Those were kind of rough. Uh, we were still kind of trying to figure figure things out and uh, try to try to put together a show that we thought people might like, and it sort of evolved into well, maybe a little bit smoother product than, than <laughs> back then. They should be grateful that we never actually released our episode zero. Oof, yeah. That was a fun one. That was bad. Yeah. Uh, but as for where to find me online, you can just go to kengagney.com. That currently redirects to my about.me page where you can find my Facebook, Twitter, Google+, Vimeo, YouTube. You may know me from that YouTube unboxing video of the Nintendo Wii U, which got over a million hits. And I have just pre-ordered both my PlayStation 4 and my Xbox One in a hope of replicating that success come this November. Yeah, you're a big console gaming celebrity now. <laughs> Nobody has yet to recognize me and say, hey, I know those hands. <laughs> uh, I'm actually not hardly as much a console gamer as I used to be. I was a member of the press in the electronic entertainment industry for the better half of a decade, going to the Electronic Entertainment Expo, and I've started dabbling in it again lately. I moderated a panel at PAX East this year, and I've written some game articles for PC World. And I have a YouTube channel now where you can watch me play video games, but um, I'm really not hardcore anymore. I have no interest in the PS4 or the Xbox One. I'm just going to buy them, unbox them, and probably flip them. <laughs> You're quite the mercenary, Ken. Sorry, man. It's the way it is. Yep. So. But anyway, I think our introduction to this episode has been the most literal introduction we've ever had on the Open Apple Show. I think Indeed. we should Indeed. get to something more substantial now. I would like to thank Adafruit Industries for mentioning our Steve Wozniak interview. I think that that certainly boosted the popularity among people who had never heard of us. Yeah, that mention came to us from J.M. D. Cristofaro, a.k.a. John Janeer. We really appreciate it. it was, it's always a pleasant surprise to find that somebody else has discovered our show. And, Indeed. And uh, we appreciate the hat tip. Yep, and uh, we hope that uh, you enjoy this show, too. So let's get rolling. All right. Hi, I'm Randy Wigginton, and welcome to the Open Apple Podcast. 
Today we have on the show a friend to the entire Apple II community, courtesy Kansas Fest 2013, when he showed up and introduced himself and made waves, a gentleman I have been blogging about for years and never expected I would have the good fortune to meet face-to-face, none other than Mr. Charles Mangan, coming to us today all the way from North Carolina. Hi, Charles. Hey, Ken. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. It's nice to finally talk to you virtually after talking to you in person <laughs> for, for so long. No. <laughs> I don't know if this it is a downgrade or an upgrade. No, it was, it was great to, to meet you at Kansas Fest. The, uh, the conversation that we'd had and the, the, the emails and stuff back and forth over the years didn't quite prepare me to, uh, for just how weird Kansas Fest was and you personally. And you're comparing me to say Carrington, who is like the epitome of weird? Well, Carrington is the same on the various podcasts that he's on as he is in person. So he's always on, whereas in recorded media, you're a bit more professional <laughs> than you are when you're in, you know, in person, you're a bit more off the cuff. And well, there's our first blooper. <laughs> what? That, that Ken is professional yes. in some? <laughs> That's no blooper. <laughs> so, wow. Well, I, I don't know whether I should say thank you or screw you. So I'll just let that comment slide. Let's just say it's a compliment. <laughs> I prefer people to be, um, yeah, more, uh, more loose and open and, and, you know, have their. Is this what uh, they call a backhanded compliment? I guess. Well, for <laughs> what it's worth, Charles, having met you at Kansas Fest, you're not exactly right in the head either. No, no. <laughs> Show's getting off to a grand start. <laughs> so, Charles, tell us a little bit about your Apple II background. What is it that brings you to this wild hobby of ours? Well, I, I come to the Apple II sort of backwards. Um, my first computer that I really used was an Apple II, and that's partly because it's what they had in the school that uh, I went to, the elementary school I went to, but also because that's what we had at home. My dad bought one to use AppleWorks, and I think it was VisiCalc that he was using for spreadsheets. Um, he was doing uh, like the treasurer for our, our neighborhood association, that sort of thing. And he used all the business applications. And my brother and I used it to play games and learn how to program basic and write uh, you know, write our reports and, and that sort of thing for many years. After you know high school and college, I was using a Mac because I was in graphic design. And that's just – that was the logical choice. And so I was into Mac stuff, and I've always been – a fan of vintage Macs, even as I sort of passed them by, I, I loved the you know, the look of the Mac Plus and the sort of simplicity of the SE and that kind of, that kind of thing. Even as I was getting into G3s and G4s and, and that sort of thing for work. Um, so for a long time, my vintage hobby and vintage collection was Macs, um, mostly little toaster Macs. I actually have a whole bookshelf built as uh, with the toaster max as uh the risers for the bookshelf because i had so many and i needed a shelf to store them on but i didn't have one so i built one and then i was doing the projects that i think you originally sort of found out about through my website the the various frankintosh projects where i take an old mac and put it into an even older mac <laughs> and uh you know various the, those sort of hardware things where i was taking one kind of computer, one kind of thing, and putting it in the enclosure of another. Sort of like the uh, turducken of the Apple world. Yeah, I, I, some people compared it to the turducken, but I would need a third thing inside of the second thing to make it a turducken. It was more more just a um, 
you know, a, a stealthy G4 inside a Mac Plus, that sort of thing. Gotcha. Um, and a, a pair of Laser 128s came my way. Um, the Apple, the 2C clone, or 2C Plus clone, I guess, that, uh, I dug into just, they, a friend of a friend kind of had them and said, Hey, you're into Apple stuff. You can have these. And so I got a monitor and I got, uh, a couple of, um, applications through, uh, ADT pro and started playing more with the Apple two stuff. And I dug them and I was like, I, I, I miss playing this stuff and doing this stuff with the Apple two. And that kind of got me into it. Um, again, so now I've got, I, I've gone even further back, you know, before 1984. So I've got, Vintage Max mingling with vintage Apple IIs. I mean, who knows? Maybe I'll go back further and get a, uh, you know, get an Altair or something if I get uh, get swept up in it. Now you mentioned that you were in graphic design, but mm-hmm. these hacks of yours make you sound more like a hardware guy. Well, I am a bit of a hardware guy in the sense that I like to cobble things together, but I still have a design sense, you know, a design background in that it's all really well designed Apple hardware. Let's just let's just say that uh, I went to school for graphic design. Yes, being technically minded and a you know a, a bit of a nerd to begin with, I was the guy that everyone asked to fix their computer when it broke or install software or hey, can you get you know can you get me a copy of this? I don't you know I can't afford it. I'm a student. That kind of thing. So I was I was immediately the you know the the hacker amongst the designers. And that was doing, I was doing website development before, before Netscape was a thing. And I was running Linux on my 8100 when nobody else knew what Linux was. And it was, uh, it was that sort of mix of, uh, sort of left brain, right brain stuff that's always been my passion. And now it's, software and hardware and I'm doing more and more with soldering and designing my own boards and gluing things together with Arduino and you know writing code at the same time as I'm you know trying to make the circuit traces on this board look nice as well as function. So were you the guy in the Apple II GS commercial who's drawing on the chalkboard with both hands? No. No. I, <laughs> oh. I I wish I was that ambidextrous. No, I'm I'm sorely lacking in the ambidextry department. I don't know how that <laughs> manual dexterity is not my thing. So tell me a bit more about these hacks. You mentioned putting a G four inside like a Mac classic, but you've done a couple that are uh that use Apple II hardware on the inside or the outside. I think primarily mm-hmm. on the outside. Tell us a bit mm-hmm. more a bit more about that. Uh I think the first one I did was uh a Mac Mini pretty much unmodified because it fits so nicely inside the shell of a disk two drive. The, the only real difficult modification with that was getting the, the door, the little, uh, for lack of a better term, the disk door that you open up to get the, the floppy out to actually have a spring to it because that whole mechanism is actually tied to the I guess it's the centering disc or whatever the the spindle for the for the floppy and of course that all has to go out if you're replacing it you know replacing the guts of the disc too with uh, a Mac and so that was that was really the only challenging part otherwise it's a it's a five inch drive 
and the Mac Mini is built around a five-inch DVD drive. And so without its case, it fit in really nicely without a whole lot of extra work. Um, getting the, the optical drive slot to line up with the floppy slot was just a matter of shimming it up, you know, a few millimeters. Uh, it was a really easy hack and it turned out great because it looks just like a disc two drive until you, um, put a DVD in it and boot it up. These tendencies of yours to <laughs> meld machines in ways that God never intended has uh, motivated you to create hardware to actually facilitate further Frankensteins, which right. are the products that you're now selling. Right, exactly. That's the that's a very good segue, a very professional segue. Well, the- you know, I don't like to be <laughs> off the cuff on such a rehearsed show such as this. <laughs> yes, the next uh, the next project that I took on was uh, a 2C, the... I I got I think I got a couple of them off of eBay and this one was the one that I decided to hack was in sort of less than ideal shape the handle was missing it had a couple of cracks in the case uh, I think it even had a couple of screws m- missing from the case so uh it had a good keyboard and the the case in general was in good shape so that it looked fairly complete uh, obviously it was missing the handle and and if you looked at it closely it looked like it was a little banged up but that was okay because it makes it more authentic right so i took the keyboard and the shell from that and threw everything else into my giant bin of parts again the mac mini is sort of my muse it's small enough to fit into spaces where you think a computer can't fit in that so many girlfriends have broken up with me when i say that <laughs> These days, I think the the kind of people that are modifying things or are putting like a Raspberry Pi or a, a BeagleBone or Arduino into something. I'm sorry, a few did years you say ago, BeagleBone. BeagleBone, yes. Uh, so, is that a rel- any rel- relation to Beagle Brothers? No, it's not. It's it, it's a fortunate name, but it's it's a um it's another single board computer in the same vein as the the Pi and the Arduino. Huh. Um. Yeah, it's 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 really quite capable. It just doesn't. I don't think it has the cachet of the Raspberry Pi, or the community behind it that the Arduino does. But it's a it's a really capable little machine, and it runs. I want to say you can run a a full version of Linux on it, like you would a a, a Pi. But um, anyway, I'm I'm going down a rat hole. The <laughs> the the idea the idea is that before those little single board computers became available and were so cheap, um, you could get a, a Mac Mini, and if you got a used one, especially an older one that you know was maybe a, a G4 instead of the power instead of the the Intel ones, um, you could get those for pretty cheap on eBay or school sales and things like that. And again, they would cram into very small places, and you could use them for car computer or uh, the computer that ran your media center. Uh, I've got one actually downstairs that's running my media centers very happily chugging away in my um in my stereo console. Um so what I did was I sorted out the the dimensions inside, took a few pieces of plastic out of the the inside of the case of the 2C and then I thought okay, well now I got to find a project online that some where someone has connected the the keyboard from a, an Apple II to a Mac. And I looked and I found a, a few kind of um, 
roundabout ways using a serial or using terminal kind of things, but they required the actual, you know, working hardware from the Apple II. And then I found some schematics for how the matrix keyboard worked, where it's lines of column and lines of row, and you cross one with the other, and you get a signal on this pin, and it becomes a keystroke. And so I said, well, I, I think I can figure that much out. It's voltage on this pin equals uh, an A. Voltage on these pins equals a B, that kind of thing. It was a little bit more complicated than that, but the the germ of the idea was, hey, I'm dumb enough to think that I can do this. And being self-taught uh, circuit designer and self-taught electrician that I am, I <laughs> thought I would tackle it. And it was obviously a learning experience. My first one worked out pretty well. I think I ended up having to hack some of the traces on the keyboard itself to get it to work. But that led me to, I found enough out about how it worked that my second one, I was able to wire up straight without doing any mods to the, the original hardware. So you could unplug the old, unplug the keyboard from this you know, custom board that I made and put it back into the Apple II and it would work. So the first one I, I put online, I, sh I kind of showed it off on my website and think a couple of websites ran, ran the story and, and I got contacted by somebody that said he wanted one for his 80s themed t-shirt shop. He wanted something that would run a modern web browser on what looked like an old Apple II monitor, you know, the, the monitor two or the monitor three or whatever. Um, and could I work that out for him? I said, sure. Uh, just buy me the hardware and shipping and pay me, you know, write me a check and I'll be glad to. So having figured out enough to, to do the first one with the 2C, I had a whole lot more room to work with in a 2E. And, you know, we went back and forth on how to do the display. And I ended up putting a, an LCD display inside of a, I guess it's a monitor too that has the, the, um, the tilting bevel thing. I mm -hmm. can't remember what model of, of display that is, but uh, I was able to maintain as much of the original hardware as I could for, you know, at least the shell. So it looked fairly unmodified, except for the screen was flat. Uh, you know, you powered up, you were able to use the, the, uh, the Apple II's keyboard and an old, I don't think it was an Apple II era. I think it was a, an early Macintosh mouse that I found that would work. Um, I built a uh, built an optical mouse into that shell rather than translating USB into the Apple II's um, mouse protocol, but it still looked pretty cool. <laughs> With you know, you walk up and you would enter in your information to sign up for the newsletter or browse their website, that kind of thing, on a uh, on an Apple II. Very cool. Speaking of all your various hardware hacks, the first time you and I actually spoke was about a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. regarding a non-Apple II-related device, so a slight tangent to this show, but something I want to ask you about, and that was your first unsuccessful and then successful Kickstarter. <laughs> yes. So yes tell, my... tell us in brief about that. I can't remember if it was Randy or maybe it was Randy saying that Waz used to say, get it right the second time. <laughs> that's true. Uh, at Kansas Fest. Um, and that's... That's something that I've kind of taken to heart myself. Uh, I, I always manage to screw things up at least once before I get it right. And so the, uh, the pressure pen is 
my was my first attempt at crowdfunding and open source hardware and 3D printing and circuit design and a bunch of other things as well. I, again, a lot of the things that I take on are mainly because I wanted to learn how to do it. And so I figured out a thing that I could learn and have a product at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that case, it was a pressure-sensitive stylus for the iPad. Again, going to design school when I did, there were the first sort of generation of the Wacom pens that you could use to draw in Illustrator or Photoshop or Corel. Was it Corel or I forget what application it was. It was Painter um, that used all the pressure sensitivity of the pen to make more realistic brush strokes if as if you were really painting or really drawing with chalk or or charcoal or whatever and i thought when i saw the first ipad come out i thought okay there's there's going to be a spate of pressure sensitive drawing things whether it's a stylus that does it or an application that that can sense it somehow based on how you know how big the the brush is that kind of thing and I waited and waited and waited, and nothing ever came out from Griffin or from Adobe or anybody else. And so I thought, well, again, I was dumb enough to think that I could do it myself and smart enough to figure out a a way that I might be able to do it myself. And so I worked on it, made some prototypes, worked with a, a couple of programmer friends to come up with prototype software. And I thought, okay, great, this is this is what I wanted. Now I have one. Can I make it something that other people would would buy, you know? Not like I'm going to make enough money to retire, but at least sort of break even, I guess, on the, the investment that I had made. So I went on Kickstarter and sort of shot for the moon. I think it was $60,000, either fifty dollars or $60,000 was my budget for injection molding and uh, a batch of a 1,000 professionally made drawing software, painting software developed specifically for it, that sort of thing. And got nowhere. It just immediately went fizzled and died. So I readjusted my goals. And all the while I was making improvements to the design and uh, making it more streamlined and cost less to produce and that sort of thing. So my second Kickstarter, I went for a batch of 100. And I was thinking uh, 3D printed shells instead of injection molded shells because I could do a, a batch of 100. There are service bearers that will do that. Even Shapeways could do it. Um, online sites like that where you can send them a design file and they'll send you back a, a printed object. With the help of friends and family and a uh, – I think I was on Gizmodo and Engadget and a few other websites – was it Computer World where you were working at the time? That's correct. Yeah, Computer World. Um, it got a little bit more coverage and a little bit more uh, interest, and I made my goal. I was able to – well, <laughs> I was therefore obligated to make my <laughs> – make the the pressure pen a, a real thing, a real product. And I've sold – actually sold out between – the backers and uh, customers after the fact, uh, I don't know what else you would call them, but um, sold out of pressure pens almost completely now. And once 
once I run out of the shells that I've made, the plastic shells, which are the more expensive, the most expensive part of it, um, I think what I'm going to do is find someone that can print them on demand mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe rejigger the, the cost a little bit. And, you know, I'm selling kits as well. So if you have a 3D printer, you can make your own. But the, uh, the, the first, the, the initial run of a hundred has finally just about sold out. Now, would you ever go back to Kickstarter for an Apple II project? I noticed you didn't for the retro connector. Um, I would if it was something that needed an upfront investment that I couldn't just put on a credit card. For the, the retro connector stuff, I was doing it in small enough batches and I was doing all the labor myself and there weren't any real, really expensive parts that needed to be paid for 30 days in advance kind of thing where I was able to go ahead and finance it myself. The experience from the pressure pen of making sure that my shipping schedule was, you know, (laughs) my schedule and my budget was within the realm of reality. And rather than doing a, a, a Kickstarter or a, a, some kind of funding. I just decided I'll take, uh, I'll take pre-orders. And once a certain number of pre-orders came in, I think, okay, well, I've, I've got enough now where I can go ahead and make this many circuit boards. I feel like I should have, should be able to commit to this many parts and boards and that kind of thing. So what is your next project then? I've got a bunch of them in the works. And that's kind of the problem with me is my non-professional Work life is more tinkering as opposed to guided development. I have a few things that I really want to do uh, as a follow-up to Retro Connector. One is getting a, a USB interface for the 2GS, uh, which means translating USB into ADB, which is something that's already been done, but I want to make it a little bit more... Elegant? Uh, elegant... Um, Turnkey? Turnkey. There's, yeah, there you go. You, you pop it in, it comes, you know, you have a, a port that sticks out the back that's USB and you just plug it in and go. You don't have to modify your own hardware. You don't have to run a, you don't have to put a drive or anything on there. So that's, that, that I think is the next goal is, uh, something for the GS. But I've got the keyboard pretty much solved with the 2E and the 2C. It's the next thing I think really is the joystick slashed mouse. And again, that's a, a an already solved problem of people working out how to do, I guess, the X and Y on the on the joystick or on the mouse. And uh, my my shtick is gluing the old with the new together with Arduino and making it so that you can pretty easily reprogram it. So that if you wanted to, you know, add rapid fire or add a a button combination or in the case of the keyboards, add a, a macro, type something out for you with just a keystroke instead of having to type it all in by hand. That's the kind of thing you can do with Arduino if you have uh, a couple of pieces of hardware, just basically a, a, a USB port and, in one case, a, a programmer for the chip that you can buy, and the Arduino code, which is open source, and the software is all free. So that's where I kind of aim these things at is so that I can put something out there and other people can find a use for it or find uh, an improvement that they can make. And 
it's all open source hardware and software. It's based on open open source stuff. So I, it's not like I could go proprietary and say, no, you can't have the source. Um, it's all based on stuff that's out there in the world. So uh, I figure whatever I'm getting, I should share. As you said in your Kansas Fest interview for Computer World, you're not doing it for the money. You're doing it more for the geek cred. Geek cred, yes. And every project that I've ever done has has really come down to something that I wanted. So I went to make it. I heard Waz and Randy at Kansas Fest say the same thing. Waz wanted a terminal, so he made one. And then he wanted a computer, so he made one. Mm-hmm. And then they wanted to go to Vegas, so they made a a disk drive. <laughs> they wanted <laughs> they wanted to be able to put software on, on a, a floppy disk, and so they made one. And so on a much smaller scale, that's what I do. I I wanted to be able to use the that vintage hardware and get the the feel of the the old original clicky keys and the the big beige boxes and things but still be able to run you know OS 10 right and so i figured out how to do it and then i figured oh other people might want to do this too so i made a product out of it and the same thing with the pressure pen i wanted to be able to draw with something other than my finger and also be able to push a little bit harder to get a fat you know, a brush stroke and a little bit lighter to get a skinny brush stroke. And that's where, you know, the next, the next thing is going to come in. I want to be able to hook up the, a mouse that I can get at Tiger Direct for, you know, five bucks rather than having to hunt down an Apple mouse that'll work with the 2E so that I can use mouse paint or I can play some of the, the joystick games and things like that that are eluding me right now because all I have is the keyboard working. Soon, my friend. Soon. Yes. It always fascinates me to to hear someone like you, Charles, talk about how you just want to make a project and you and you just go and do it because I, I've always sort of aspired to that and I've never reached the the level of knowledge or or probably based mainly because I'm I don't have the time or whatever. Um, and so it's 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 inspiring to hear people actually still able to go out and do that with Apple II hardware because that's what leads us to things like the CFFA 3000 and your retro connector and um, and helps keep the community and the platform alive and interesting. Right. And and part of... Let me back up a second. I, I got to say that what allows me to do all of this tinkering is it's not that I have a, an, a, you know, an abundance of free time, but I do have a very understanding wife. <laughs> and I work for myself, so I work out of my house. And the reason for that is, you know, I've had corporate jobs. I've had jobs in a, a really large company and a really small company. And I liked working in the small company enough, but it got absorbed into a larger company. And so eventually I quit that job and worked, started working for myself. So, um, sorry, the, the point that I was making was that if I had to work in a corporate job nine to five, I would probably blow my brains out. Oh my. Well, we wouldn't want that. <laughs> no, we wouldn't. <laughs> and so I work, and so I work for myself. And as I said, I have a very understanding wife and thus a very flexible work schedule. So when I'm not really busy with paying work, I can tinker and fiddle with things that are, you know, personal projects. And then sometimes those personal projects become paying work or they become the product, uh, the retro connector, that sort of thing. If I were totally non-distracted, I probably wouldn't know what to do. <laughs> it's, it's hard to describe, but 
if I'm if I'm if I sit down at a project, you know, working on a website or working on a, um, you know, some kind of de- some development project, and I've got to sit down and I've got to bang it out in the next four hours. I need a break. I need something else to think about from time to time. And so part of my brain is thinking, well, what if I do this? And oh, there's this there's this new board from Adafruit. I could probably put that in the, and then. But how is the CFFA guy doing? And it's just sort of, <laughs> kind of going on in the background so that I'm not, I'm not totally eaten up by, like, I, I don't have a laser beam like focus, as you can tell, because I'm rambling about the fact that I don't have a laser beam like focus. <laughs> How meta. Yeah. You're going to edit all this out, right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the plan. The ultimate point was I, I have a very flexible work schedule and a very understanding wife. So I can take on, these personal projects along with paying work and not have to wait to wait to work on them after five o'clock or only on the weekends. Like a lot of people would, I get a lot of help in that department. Well, those of us in the community who benefit ultimately from your unique situation are very appreciative, both to your wife and to your schedule. So here's to understanding wives or not having them at all. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. Starting off the news this month is, of course, there was Kansas Fest. We want to briefly mention another event this summer, VCF Southwest 4.0. Did anybody go? The answer is no, because there was no VCF Southwest 4.0, despite what we said in our July episode. We totally made up an entire convention by mistake that did not happen in Texas this summer. We're lame. We are. And we published a blog post immediately to that effect. Even Juice GS got it wrong. Those idiots over there didn't, don't know what they're reporting. Jerks. So <laughs> our mistake was we, we, I, whichever, had gone to the VCF website for last year and th- that website is written in the future tense saying VCF Southwest will occur next month, August 4th to the 5th. And we didn't realize that it was written in July of 2012. So it was talking mm. about last summer's, and we didn't do yes, our fact every, every website with that sort of information needs to have a, a timestamp on it, or else expire. It did have a timestamp, but it was not prominent. We don't actually research any of our facts here either, so... Well, we try, we try, and this we is do. certainly one of the more egregious examples of us not doing that, but we apologize if anybody actually showed up in Texas and found the doors locked and nobody home. Kansas Fest. Let's see, Mike and I talked about that a bit in the intro. Charles, you had your first one. Was it a positive mm-hmm. experience? Mm-hmm. It was. It's. So- I have sort of mixed emotions now that it's over and look back on it, because I think that was the first one that I've been to, and it was pretty much everything that I was looking forward to. But <laughs> I feel like if I go back to Kansas Fest next year and it's a little disappointing, it's going to be because I had such a great time this year. Yeah, you know, there was Waz and there was an Apple One and it was the was it the twenty fifth anniversary yep. and so it was a big, you know, uh, a great showing and lots of people and so maybe next year's not going to be quite as big and so I'll be a little disappointed. No. Well, you know, Charles, they say at almost every K-Fest, we don't know how we're going to top this next year because we've had mm-hmm. Jason Scott and Bob Bishop and Mark Simonson and as soon as they announce the keynote speaker for next year, everybody says, "Wow, you are topping it. That's amazing." 
I guess, in theory, perhaps the ultimate keynote speaker is Steve Wozniak, who we had 10 years ago. And I would say that the K-Fest we've had in the last five years have been better than the one in 2003 because we're at Rockhurst instead of Avalo. We're almost triple the attendance that we were back then. Well, maybe not triple, but certainly double. And yeah, every K-Fest is completely different. You are right about that. And the 25th was unique, and we won't have Randy Wigginton... Uh, guaranteed next year. He said he wants to come. Steve Wozniak said he wants to come. But, you know, it's and it'll be an entirely different composition, different uh, circumstances, different experience, and different surprises. Charles, did you have any favorite sessions at KFest this year? I think it was uh, Steve Weirich did the uh, software deprotection. That would be Martin Hay. Martin Hay. Yes, he was doing, he was boot tracing, I think it was wizardry. Going through the steps of deprotecting it by stepping through what the code was doing in real time and putting stop points in and rewriting the code in memory as it ha- you know as it happened and as it was executing, I-, I thought, okay, there are people that can still do that. <laughs> you know, it, it seems like the kind of thing that oh, I know there's people that have have looked at the circuit boards and looked at the, the ROM and, and understand that kind of thing. And, and they've, you know, they've become an expert on, uh, you know, the, the provenance of, of, you know, prototypes and that sort of thing. But a lot of that knowledge of, has, uh, of, of, uh, you know, the hackers of old, I guess, has sort of gone by the wayside and people have sort of graduated on to doing other things or, or they've fallen off and, you know, maybe they work for the phone company now instead of hacking the phone <laughs> company, that sort of thing. Watching that happen and being able to understand it, which was the real shock, was sort of eye-opening to me. Okay, this is, they're doing the kinds of things that I expected were either no longer possible or that no one was interested in doing anymore. And there were a lot of those kinds of things, just watching the the projects that people were working on in the hallways and in the dorm rooms and um, some of the other sessions talking about getting um, uh, just hacking into the, the assembler for the GSOS. And I mean, just things like that, that really struck me as uh, big eye opening surprises. I found Martin's presentation a nice compliment to your own about how to hack your characters in an RPG like Wizardry. Yeah, I I felt like I was I was doing the um remedial class and he was doing <laughs> the advanced class. I don't know about that. They're very different goals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 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 act of opening up a disk image or even opening up a sector editor if you want to do it on the original hardware and flipping bits around until You've you've basically fuzzed it until you found where it broke, and you know what that bit did. Oh, suddenly he has infinite you know infinite lives or infinite hit points, or suddenly this character is alive instead of dead. That sort of thing. It's sort of along the same lines, but like I said, it's the remedial class compared to some of the other presentations. That uh, there were there were a few that I was surprised that I was able to follow, and there were plenty that I just I, I glossed over and and waited for the executive summary at the end. I don't know. I I definitely enjoyed your presentation. I remember uh, those types of articles were sort of a a staple of the Computist magazine, you know, mm-hmm. going in and fixing the Bard's Tale characters and Ultima and stuff like that. So it was fun to watch someone do that interactively instead of just reading a magazine article on, mm-hmm. on how it's mm-hmm. done. 
Yeah, and also your presentation, Charles, is as a concept not dramatically different from what Melissa Barron did when she turned Organ Trail into Leet Speak and Lowell Speak. Right. And right. The, and that presentation went over like gangbusters. I remember Ivan Drucker in the audience saying, "This is one of the coolest things I've ever seen." So I, I think it's definitely worthwhile to be doing that sort of remedial, quote unquote, work. <laughs> yes, and uh, uh, it was a hard act to follow, obviously. Um. <laughs> yes, there's some there's some pretty big brains that show up at uh, Kansas Fest, and it can be a little intimidating at first, especially when you have Steve Wozniak in the audience. Hmm. Well, I don't remember he was in the audience for either of mine, but lucky um, you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the guy's talking about the the history of the disc two and and um, of storage mediums and stuff like that. Just okay. Um, was this right? <laughs> did, did I get that right? <laughs> I was uh, standing behind Steve and Randy when Tony was giving that disc two drive mm. presentation, and they were whispering back and forth, and I was just thinking, I wonder what they're saying. <laughs> oh, to be a fly on that one. Mm, yeah, no kidding. Hmm. It's that Tony guy again. Oh, sick of that guy. <laughs> Do we have any other highlights of K-Fest we want to mention? I'm sure that between our own Open Antichurse podcast and Kirk mm-hmm. Mitchell's CSA2 post and Sean Fay's A2 Central post and my upcoming JuiceGS article, there will be a lot of coverage. Is there anything we want to specifically highlight? I think it's been pretty well covered. Mm-hmm. Well, your performance at Bite the Bag was remarkable, <laughs> Ken. Your own uh, Was that your own personal record? I came in second. I have won before, but this oh, yeah. year I came in second. Ever since Dan Kruzna show, started showing up to K-Fest, uh, I've lost my throne at Bite the Bag. Something's got to be done about that guy. No, we like him. I think we'll, <laughs> we'll keep him. Mm, all right. Maybe next time. <laughs> Let's mention the annual Interactive Fiction Competition, or IF Comp. This is the 19th annual such event, and it is... A competition that invites programmers and authors from around the world to submit original pieces of interactive fiction, also known as text adventures. It can run on the Apple II in the Emin system. It can run in Inform 6 or Inform 7 on a modern system or anything else that you can imagine, pretty much. Uh, we have had Wade Clark represent the Apple II in years past with his game Leadlight, which was on the cover of Juice GS two and a half years ago, and which was uh, well received. It won, I think, the Golden Banana Award for most diverse scores. People either loved it or hated it, and he theorized that what people hated about it was that it ran on the Apple II. They were not used to such an archaic interface. But the game itself was actually quite fascinating. Uh, so if you want to compete, you can submit uh, you can register to compete by September 1st and then submit your actual interactive fiction by late September. Uh, this is run by Stephen Granade. He was interviewed in Jason Scott's Get Lamp, so you may recognize him from there. And Juice GS has donated a couple of prizes. There are, in fact, prizes. This is not just for the fame and glory or, as Charles would say, the geek cred. So check it out at ifcomp.org. Are either of you text adventure gamers or programmers? Or have you ever been? I'm not, but my co-host on another podcast is working on something for that, I believe. Really? Mm-hmm. Uh, is that he, he who shall not be named? <laughs> we, we're not allowed to say his name. Oh, okay. You will, otherwise, you'll it's invoke a, him. It's a stipulation in this contract. Yeah, it's a copyright issue. We have to pay him every time. Yep. Huh. Yeah, he's, he's working on something. I was going to say, I used to love playing the text adventure games. I got sucked into Zork and uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy... Uh, especially Hitchhiker's Guide. I played that one. I replayed that one most of all, even Ooh, after I game. had, even after I had solved it. Well, between me and a friend had solved it. And, uh. Isn't that cheating? 
No, it's collaborating. <laughs> Collaboration is key. No, I agree. Uh, and those early games were especially keen for that because not everybody would have the game, so you'd all have to go over to your friend's house and play mm-hmm. it together. Right, right. Or he would do a save game, and then and then I would come over, and he'd say, "Oh, I got to this place," and then then uh, then we'd play for a little bit, and then uh, I would take his save game and play it on my machine, and then I'd get a little bit further, I'd get lost or whatever, and say, "Okay, we got to go back to save number five, and you know, then solve this puzzle through this way, and then I'd find out that it was something that I should have waited to do until I had the lamp or the sword or what have you. Uh, we did that with, you know, Zork 1, 2, and 3, Hitchhiker's Guide, um, a few of the other Infocom games that, that escape me right now, but the, the Zork games especially were really frustrating to me. I loved playing the Zork games and the Infocom games, all of them. The, the writing was really good and the descriptions of, uh, objects and spaces really kind of made it, uh, a lot more uh, I don't know what it was about the writing in the Infocom games, but they were a lot, they were always a lot better than the other, uh, brand of games that I, that I played. It was always terrible, terrible at those <laughs> games, but I loved to play them. <laughs> I would always find new and interesting ways to die or to lose my inventory or mm-hmm. to, you know, get stuck in a maze, that kind of thing. That's one of the things I loved about Shadowgate. There were so many ways to die in that game and they were all fascinating. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the Kickstarter-funded remake that's coming out soon. Mm. But that's neither here nor there. I hadn't heard about that. Oh, yes. I will... Uh, well, apparently you don't follow the blog on which I've blogged about you, Charles. I <laughs> I do, but I have a lot of RSS feeds. <laughs> or listen to this podcast, because we've talked about it here, too. Oh, that's okay. I mean, <laughs> hours upon hours of us droning on, I can imagine a yeah, people might kidding. zone out every now and then. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, yeah, I have comp. Yay. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about Mr. Steve Wozniak, who was not the keynote speaker at KFest this year. Let's see. Mike, I think you caught him being interviewed by The Verge. Yes, the geek culture website, I guess. Uh, the Verge. Well, that, inter- that narrows it down. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Interviewed Woz. He talks about uh, the technology of the Newton and about his fascination with Tesla. And I, I guess he wanted one for his birthday. And I think now he's got one because he, keep, uh, he keeps posting that he's at various Tesla charging stations in California. <laughs> uh, and he talks about uh, his thoughts on the original Mac and how maybe it uh, maybe it wasn't the the great machine that Jobs thought it was. Really? Yep. Well, he said a few times that uh, the original Mac was uh, a failure in the marketplace and technologically it was very limited. So that, I don't think he's saying anything that he hasn't said before. But if you're interested, he's talking about that stuff. He's also not saying anything that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> the, I think if it were up to him, it would have had six slots and have come with the schematics and been a lot more open operating system-wise. Well, that certainly represents the divide in philosophies between not only Waz and Jobs, but also, say, Jobs and Gates. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. one open versus closed. Well, <laughs> Gates, won- Gates didn't really want everything open so much as he wanted he wanted everyone to be able to pay him what he was due. <laughs> Everyone should be able to develop for this system and therefore pay me a pittance. I apologize if I just compared Steve Wozniak with Bill Gates. I, I would probably be <laughs> caned and stoned and hanged for that in some parts of this country. I, Gates, I don't think, cared as much about 
open or closed as, as, as he did, like Charles said, just about, you know, you pay your license fee and I'll open my whole system up for you and you can develop whatever you want. Whereas Apple didn't charge any licensing fees for all the things that went in those expansion slots. In the Apple II. Right. 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 That all changed in the Mac. Everything became much more closed off and NDA'd and, um, you had to do it the, the, the Mac approved way, even writing applications required a very specific and stringent human interface guidelines, which made it a, a much more consistent and usable interface for the user, but for developers and for, uh, people who were, who wanted to tinker, it was, it was very closed off. Ultimately, it succeeded in a particular way, whereas the people that wanted to tinker went with the more open and, you know, wild, wild west of the, the PC and its clones. But it was a, it was a very stark divide between what the Apple II had done and what the, the Mac did. Right. That's, that's what led to the inclusion of the quote diagnostic port on the Macintosh, actually. Well, fortunately, we've not yet reached the point in the desktop computer's evolution where it is as gated a community as our mobile devices are. Uh, that would be horrific, in my opinion. And as long as we have stuff like the Raspberry Pi, I don't think we'll ever get there. True, and then now there, there's what Ubuntu and even Firefox is doing, a, an OS, a phone OS, more open Linux-based OSs that have uh, basically made for developers to, to toy around with, not so much the, um, the lockdown walled garden, so to speak. Right. I, too, caught an interview with the Wozniak, and... No, wait, that's not what he's called. Nobody calls him Wozniak. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, being dramatic, too hard. Even Janet calls him Woz. Seriously? Yep. That's awesome. <laughs> there was one point where we were at Kansas Fest, and Woz was just coming on campus, and Carl was there, and he said, good morning, Woz, and I'm like... <gasps> Carl, you're being way too familiar with him. He's Mr. Wozniak, or God for short. But, wow. Okay, so he is... And I wonder if anybody calls him Steve. Maybe his mother? I don't know. <laughs> Steven? Steven oh. Gary Wozniak. You get oh, your butt over in trouble. Here. Right. Anyway, so Woz was interviewed by Game Informer magazine, and they published the article about this back in, like, April or so. I mentioned it on my Apple II Bits blog at the time. There was a very brief video posted online that showed Waz playing Tetris, which he says is probably one of his all-time favorite games. Not his favorite game, but certainly the one he's played the most. And he's still playing it on an old black-and-white Game Boy. That's the version he likes the best. He doesn't play it on the iPhone, because you'd have to learn a whole new interface and stuff. Well, a couple months after that article came out in the print magazine Game Informer, they went back online and published the entire 45-minute video interview that they recorded with Waz, including that Tetris segment, plus much more. And it being Game Informer, they focused primarily on the gaming aspects of the Apple II and of computers in general and what Woz likes about games and computers' ability to do so. And I found it fascinating. I watched the whole thing. Uh, Egan Ford mentioned it to me that it was one of his favorite interviews with Woz. And it's really worth watching. I posted a couple of excerpts again to my blog, but it's better to go right to Game Informer and just watch the whole video. I recommend it. Yes, it was, an, yeah. it was an excellent video. There will be a link in the show notes. Yep. Now, was Woz telling the story about how the Nintendo magazine 
made him stop sending in his scores for Tetris? That tale is one of the many he relates again in this video. How he had the high score and he'd send in pictures to Nintendo Power. And eventually they said, you've been in our magazine too often. We're going to stop printing your name. So he sent in his name spelled backwards. And they printed it. And he had actually forgotten about that until I guess he was flipping through some old Nintendo Powers. He's like, oh yeah, there's my name backwards. Huh. The image and the idea that Waz flips through old Nintendo Power magazines in his free time just <laughs> <laughs> puts a smile on my face. I, I also can't help but wonder if Nintendo Power knew whose submissions they were receiving. Like, this is the co-founder of Apple. And by the n- time Nintendo Power started printing in the late 80s, mm-hmm. you know, Apple may have been in a slump at that point, but they were still a big name. And so... Oh, yeah. How could, how could you get this submission from Steve Wozniak and not say, oh my god, we have the co-founder of Apple wanting to appear in our magazine. We should capitalize <laughs> on this, maybe conduct an interview about how he invented Breakout or something. Oh, there's got to be more than one Steve Wozniak that plays the you know, Nintendo. It's probably some 12-year-old that has the same name. <laughs> sure. Because only kids play video games, right? Mm-hmm. Of course. There actually is some guy on Twitter named Steve Wozniak who is not the Woz. And he started replying to my tweets. Like, when I tweeted a link, watch this video of Steve Wozniak being interviewed by Game Informer, this other guy named Steve Wozniak replied to my tweet and said, Game Informer never interviewed me. (laughs) That's kind of funny. I'm like, could you be a more obvious troll? I ended up blocking him on Twitter because he was doing that to other people. I looked at his tweets, and he was doing it not just to me, but like any time... He must have had a... Uh, an alert set up. Anytime somebody mentioned the Waz on Twitter, he replied, that's not me, I never did that. I'm like, either he's a troll or he's paranoid or he's ignorant. I don't know which. Or he just got fed up with people sending him direct messages and stuff, asking him, you know, asking him about stuff for Waz and thinking that he was Waz. People that share names with celebrities and happen to have a, a convenient Twitter handle that they get they get at replied and and bombed with friend requests and stuff like that all the time. I'm sure it probably bothered him, and he just started acting out. Kind of like my coworker Michael Bolton, you know. Yeah. That name was fine until that no talent ass clown of a singer showed up. <laughs> anyway, what does PC load letter even mean? <laughs> I do not know. <laughs> but let's talk about the other co-founder of Apple, that being Mr. Steve Jobs, of course. Uh, he has been in the news a lot lately, and that is thanks primarily to Kelso from that 70s show, played by the actor Ashton Kutcher, who has grown up and gone on to play Mr. Steve Jobs himself. The second trailer for the film came out about a month ago. There was a poster, which was very colorful, especially if you're familiar with the experience of being on LSD or acid. And finally, the film itself came out on August 16th to a limited release, earned about maybe six to eight million dollars in its opening weekend, which is probably more than it costs to make the film because there aren't any fancy special effects. This isn't Titanic. And let's see, I've seen the film and I know a lot of Apple II enthusiasts who are refusing to see it due to the poor portrayal of Wozniak in the trailers. Was played by the Book of Mormon Broadway star Josh Gad. Have either of you seen Jobs, the movie? I have not. I have not either. Are either of you going to? I am going to. I'll wait for Netflix. Exactly. Ah, so you both have a... I have a couple months head start on either of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not that I 
deeply offended because of its treatment of Waz or anything like that. I just, it's not something that I feel the need to see in a theater, and I, so I'd rather see it uh, at home. Mm-hmm. Right. I've, I've read the Isaacson book. I've, I've read, uh, Waz's book. I've read the stories on folklore.org, all those kinds of things over the years, and I feel like I know the stories from the people that lived them, and I feel like seeing the movie made from the book that the book I really liked and now the movie is okay if I hadn't read the book, you know, so the stories are going to be kind of wrong and (laughs) overly dramatic and the characters are going to be kind of, well, there's going to be several characters that are combined and a bunch of people that are left out. And I will know that because it's like I said, it's, it's like I've read the book before going to see the movie. And so the movie is just kind of, lackluster in my eyes plus the fact that ashton kutcher's acting is the best part of the movie (laughs) does not bode well for the for for seeing the movie itself so the controversy seems to be that was has said some honest things about he shared his honest opinion about the the movie and and uh ashton kutcher has of course has gotten back to him and he's Kind of hit back at, at Waz saying, "Well, that's you're saying these things because you you're paid to consult on the other Jobs movie, and that's why you're saying this." Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's gotten there's there's been some articles back and forth, and and actually I was um, browsing Waz's Facebook page earlier today um, about this very topic. There's a there's a thread or a, I don't really know what you call it on Facebook mm-hmm. um, started by. A woman named Erin Elizabeth. She's a very pink person if you look at her pictures. Um, but she'd mentioned something about him having been on, um, Piers Morgan earlier, earlier this month and the conversation quickly went to the movie and he had some rather direct things to say about, about the, about the film. Um, so he's, uh, I guess, not done talking about it. Well, the complaint, the the retort that oh you're you're being paid to consult on that other movie, uh, rings a little hollow to me because shouldn't he have also been paid to consult on the Ashton Kutcher movie? Well, so theoretically that would have been a conflict of interest if he had been paid by both producers. Well, I suppose a conflict of interest, but it's not like they're. Well, I, I guess I suppose they're they're competing directly in the marketplace as they're both biopics about Steve Jobs but they weren't they didn't open on the same weekend they weren't i think they're they're aimed at different markets honestly but the fact that a living person who appears prominently in the film was not consulted on the film is seems like an oversight or maybe a slight to his involvement in the you know, in the the story that takes part uh, over a big chunk of his life, an important part of his life. Well, I think he was invited to participate, but only after the script was already written. At which point, mm. a uh, advisor's input is not likely to be very effective. Mm. And it's also possible that there was some, you know, I I can't contribute because I'm already contributing to the Aaron Sorkin one. There there may have been some sort of a yeah, non compete sort of, clause. Mm. But also, it it rings false for me for a different reason, is that people who go see this movie and who are not Waz can still tell what is right and what is wrong. 
And so you don't necessarily need to go right to the source because he's written books and given interviews on these topics already. So what could he possibly have to say that's new now? Waz actually addresses these issues in that that very thread. Um, <clears throat> somebody asked him why he didn't consult on this, and he said, I got the text here in front of me. They already had a lousy script written. If you're presented with a lousy painting, do you touch it up uh, or start with a fresh canvas? Sony asked me to consult before they wrote their script. Well, <clears throat> At first, I actually favored the Jobs movie, but when I saw the completed script that was awful, there was no choice left. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on and talks about what a lousy job Ashton did and makes comments about uh, Jobs' success and how his only success was the Apple II. And seems kind of bitter. <laughs> I don't think he appreciates the negative light in which both Kuster and the film is casting him. Yeah. Wait, whose who's only success was the Apple II? Jobs. His only oh, success I, at Apple... I would definitely back, beg to differ. Well, he says his only success at Apple before his return and his only success mm-hmm. in computers was my Apple II. I, mm, I'll give him that with an asterisk. <laughs> <laughs> Citation needed. And yeah. in fact, he, he his comments talked John Romero out of seeing the movie. Wow. Thanks for your comments, Waz. I've always been a huge fan of what you and Jobs did, and it was your comments that made me decide against seeing this movie. I hope someone is able to accurately portray the history of Apple on film one day. I would love to be able to watch something more true to life. Well, Romero would certainly not like the way he's represented in this film. Oh, it's just awful. Is he represented in the film? No, he's not. Oh. Which is why, I mean, why would you go see a movie that you're not in? (laughs) I uh, I mean, that seminal moment where Quake... No, wait a minute. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, uh, um, you get Quake to run in an Apple II? <laughs> uh, I do want to offer one clarification. This is technically not... Um, Charles, you had mentioned, you know, why would you see the movie when you've already read the book? Mm-hmm. And there is... A, the other movie that Waz is consulting on technically is the movie adaptation of the Walter Isaacson book. Oh, oh I'm not saying... Uh, well, I'm not saying that it's the... That it is the... It is the movie. I'm just saying metaphorically. It's the same story. Yeah. Right, but metaphorically, I you know I read the books of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, for instance, and yep. loved them, and reread them and reread them. Um, and then when the movie came out with um, Martin Freeman, I thought, oh, he's a great, he'll be a great Arthur Dent, and uh, some of the casting and stuff, and some of the previews. I loved the design of it, I loved the look of it. But I went to see the movie, and I was like, oh, they got that wrong. Or oh, they rewrote this part to make it more cinematic. Or and so I was tearing it apart as a as a fan of the book and the fan of the story, as opposed to coming to it fresh to see the, the, the movie. Gotcha. Uh, and so I feel like the, the same kind of thing happens with biopics of people that I know a good bit about. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I couldn't tell you how accurate the story of Ray Charles is. I'm a fan of his music, but I didn't know anything about his life until I saw the movie. Right. So you can just accept it as I could accept a it as a great movie, even. a great story, a work of fiction, even though it's based in reality. Yeah. Uh, yeah, actually, you bring up a good point. When I was walking out of the Steve Jobs film, I asked my friend who I was with, "I wonder what it would be like to see this film, and having never heard of Apple or knowing anything about it, like if this was a work of fiction, would it tell a good tale, or do you need to have that background to appreciate the movie?" I don't know. I don't know that anybody can know. I did know people in uh, in college. I, I was telling them about my 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 Apple hobby, my Mac hobby. They said, "Oh, it's too bad Apple's out of business." What? 
or it's too bad that um didn't uh, didn't Microsoft buy them? <laughs> oh, that kind yeah. of thing. It's like, uh, okay, you're obviously not you're paying attention, but you're not paying attention. Yes. So yes, Apple might have been doomed in the late '90s, but they did not go out of business. They continued to make things. So there were plenty of people in the late '90s that thought, "Oh, Apple has gone out of business," or "Apple is now owned by Microsoft." So I'm sure there are plenty of people that come to the the go to the Jobs movie that had no idea about any of those stories, and so they were thoroughly entertained. Well, I had posited on my blog that even if this film does a poor job representing Waz, isn't it still better than people not even know Waz existed? A lot of people think Steve Jobs was the sole founder of Apple. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. even as I wrote this, I didn't really believe it. I just wanted to throw it out there and see what people said. And Eric Rucker wrote back and said, no, this is not good. We want people to get their facts straight. And spreading misinformation is never a good thing. Uh, but for what it's worth, I did see the movie. I actually have a friend who got me into a press screening of the film, which afforded me the opportunity to write a formal review for ComputerWorld.com. I agree, Kuchar's act- acting was pretty good. I have actually never seen him in anything else except... Dude, where's my car? I actually liked that movie too, so I don't know what that says about my taste in movies. <laughs> okay, uh, your, your movie reviews are falling are going off of my list now. <laughs> Time to one, shut down showbits.net. Yeah, that's one of my blogs you don't have to follow anymore. Yeah, I don't have to did. follow that one. Yay. Uh but there were there was plenty wrong with the film. Uh the soundtrack was overbearing. The script consisted primarily of monologues. There was not the kind of snappy dialogue that you expect from an Aaron Sorkin film, which is what the next film is going to be. Mm-hmm. That, that's uh, the one I'm really looking forward to actually uh, sitting and and concentrating on watching because of the the dialogue and the walk and talks kind of things that I've gotten so used to with his <laughs> with his TV and other movies. Yeah. However, have you heard that Aaron Sorkin's film supposedly is going to consist of 90 minutes in the life of Steve Jobs, like 90 real time minutes? Split into three 30-minute scenes. Yep. I'm looking forward to that. I just don't understand sh- how you, how can you capture the life and times of Steve Jobs in just 90 minutes? They're 90 exceptional minutes. D- did Steve Jobs have 90 exceptional minutes in his life? Wow. <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, as an aggregate, I'm sure he did, but 30 minutes at a time? Well, from what I understand, at least one of them is the lead-up to the announcement of either the iPhone or the iPod. Each segment is a presentation that he's giving. Well, it's I think the first one is the introduction of the original Macintosh and the iPhone and then maybe the iPad. What I can imagine, having put together some very low-key keynotes with last-minute changes to PowerPoint presentations and, oh, we can't use that song because we don't have the rights or... This monitor's not working, or the, the kinds of chaos that happens in a very small, localized version of what must happen at a Mac world or at one of those big announcements. I, I can only imagine that that becomes a backdrop for the, the kinds of conversations and flashbacks and personality conflicts and things that make that a movie that I want to see. It's talking about, I'm sure there's last minute changes. Well, we can't announce that yet because we don't have this deal or why, you know, the kinds of things that Steve must have been saying to Phil Schiller just before, you know, going on stage. Those kinds of things, the, that snapshot of his life that, like I said, those exceptional minutes, uh, <laughs> it, it may not be 90 of them, but maybe, you know, maybe 30 or 40 stretched out throughout the film. 
are the kind of things that give you more of a an insight into how he did business and how he worked the room, so to speak. And that was what everyone says, everyone that knew him says he was exceptional at. Um, there's stories about his interpersonal relationships and his, you know, his family and all that. And there's plenty of stuff that covers that. But I think the stuff that isn't really told and isn't really shown, except in a really well-written piece, like I'm hoping this one is, is that uh, whirlwind of energy that he must have had doing those kinds of events and managing things at the microscopic level that he must have had and seeing the reality distortion field kind of emanate from him as he's lying through his teeth in some instances or ad-libbing things or screwing up things and laughing it off even though inside he's seething i mean those kinds of those kinds of things are what i want to see so whereas some people criticize the ashen kutcher film for being too focused on specific eras for example the film there's a, it briefly starts off in 2001 but really it starts in 1974 and goes to 77 leaps ahead from, to 1980 kind of goes to 1985 and then Briefly jumps ahead 12 years to 97 and spends 10 minutes there and films over. So really, eight, uh, 74 to 84 is the crux of the film. Doesn't mention Pixar, barely mentions Next, briefly shows his wife Laureen and his kids. So much of the f- job's life is missing out of this film. I can imagine that the Aaron Sorkin film is going to be even more laser focused because you're not going to see him, you know, doing all these other things that constitute his life. So you may get the manifestation of the job's personality, but you're not going to get the breadth of the job's story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I think that makes sense. One of the things that Ashton Kutcher has been saying actually is that well, this isn't a history of Apple. This is a history of Steve Jobs, but so much of that is. So much of, of Steve's life was Apple, and I don't know that you can separate them that much. I mean, you talked about Steve's family missing and things like that. I, Andy Hertzfeld, the, the character that, that or the, the <clears throat> excuse me, the actor that played him in in the Jobs movie had two lines, two. <laughs> I, something's missing there. Yeah, that's true. That the Jobs film that just came out is really the story not of Jobs. And not of Apple, but of Jobs' relationship with Apple. Right. And whenever those two didn't intersect, the film didn't care. And there are more interesting things to talk about than just what happened at Apple. I mean, the, there's the whole trip to India, all the people that he interacted with at you know, Pixar and all that kind of stuff. But that, that's definitely stuff for a, a book, not a movie. Right. And speaking of which, I actually started reading the Walter Isaacson book just a few days before I saw the film because I wanted to have a story to compare it to. Since the film kind of ends in 85, I got that far into the book before seeing the film. And then I, as we record this, I just finished the Jobs book last night. It was really, really good. Mm-hmm. Yep. And don't, don't spoil the ending for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I tweeted, I... Well, I've been enjoying reading the book so much, but as I got toward the end, I kind of slowed down because I didn't want to reach the end for the same reason that I don't want to watch Old Yeller. Mm. Uh, but I was actually kind of surprised. <laughs> and... <laughs> I guess you missed that tweet, Mike. Uh, yeah, I I'm pretty sure they don't shoot jobs at the end of the, at the, end of the book. Ah, oh, you just spoiled the movie. Oh, that's, anyway. just, that's an alternate ending. So... 
I actually found the ending of the book surprising and respectful. And I know that there was only, I think, less than a month between when Jobs passed away and when the book came out. So he didn't have a lot of time to incorporate that event into the book. But the way they addressed it was really, really meaningful and respectful. And I liked it. And it was a good book. And I'm sorry it's over. And it makes me, nonetheless, all the sadder that Jobs is gone because... Even though I was distraught when he passed away, this book has given me more insight into the depth of exactly what we lost. And he was not necessarily what I would call a good man, but the things that he did with Apple for this industry and this society is really remarkable. Mm -hmm. I almost wish that the book had come out and in some sense, I, I almost wish that the movie had come out while Steve Jobs was still alive so that we could see his reaction to it. Yeah, he even mentioned in the book that he would probably wait a couple of years after the book came out to read it mm -hmm. if he was still around at that that long. Right. I wonder what the Ashton Kutcher film would be like if Jobs was still alive. I was thinking that it would never happen because either he would he would put some kind of legal constraint on it or he would get uh somehow finagle um final cut on it and so he would never he would never release he'd say no this is wrong this is wrong and to and, and reshoots and reshoots to the to the point that it would never come out well i can see that especially whereas i think it was fortune magazine he got really upset with for publishing anything about his health he was in some ways mm -hmm. a very private man on the other hand mark zuckerberg couldn't stop the social network movie from coming out mm -hmm. nor did i do i think he even tried so maybe if he had, he could have, but I don't know. I'm sure that the Aaron Sorkin film would come out because it's based on a book that Jobs requested be written mm -hmm. and he wanted no prior approval of. Anyway, I'm sorry that we'll never find out. You've been listening to the Steve Jobs podcast. <sighs> <laughs> Do you think there'll ever be a, a Waz biopic? I would love that, but I don't think there is sufficient demand to warrant its production. Hmm. Maybe we can get Jason Scott on it. Maybe we can do a Kickstarter of it. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, let's move on to the game segment of the episode. We always have some games to talk about on Open Apple, and this month I want to talk to you today about Lawless Legends. It is Legends, a... Legends, Legends, Legends. <laughs> now, is that, uh, is that the story of Lucy Lawless? Yes, it is actually an 8-bit representation of Xena Warrior Princess. Nice. Indeed. With or And you get to choose to play as Xena or Gabby. Mm. That's a two-player game. <laughs> oh my. Moving on. Uh, Lawless Legends is an 8-bit RPG made in the style of Wasteland or Ultima set in the Old West, being written for the Apple II and, as I just recently realized, the Commodore 64, by a team of programmers headed by Seth Sternberger, a.k.a. Chiptune artist 8-Bit Weapon, and including Brendan Robert, Martin Hay, Antoine Vignal, and as far as I know, that is the current roster, but they are expanding and looking for more team members. They have a Facebook page, which just went live near the end of August, but the game made its official debut at Kansas Fest. Martin Hay was doing his session on deprotecting, and he started off the session by saying, one more thing, I, I don't think he understands how that's supposed to work, it goes at the end, but he started off his session by saying, oh, here's this game that we're working on, and it's amazing. And they're producing some really neat cross-platform and collaboration tools to get this game written. I 
don't know off the top of my head when it is scheduled to come out. I will look that up on Facebook while we're chatting. But I definitely recommend following it. They have more likers on Facebook than JuiceGS does right now. Darn them. And uh, this is going to be pretty cool. A brand new RPG. I, I don't know if it's going to be commercial or what. But I don't see a release date scheduled right now. And the code, I guess, is on GitHub. So perhaps it'll be open source and free. Now that's that's what interests me is the idea that it's not just this game, but follow-ups and add-ons that can come out of it. Yeah, it's nice that they're obviously not doing this just for a quick buck or even in the long term for any money. They really want to further these platforms, and they're doing it for the love of the game, so to speak. It's been a long time since I've played a computer role-playing game. I think the only time I ever have has been on the Apple II, probably the Magic Candle. I actually played Ultima and Wizardry on my 8-bit Nintendo not the Apple II. Uh, I doubt that we're going to see this game ported to Xbox One or PS4 as friendly as those platforms are to indie developers. I really think you need to be using something like Unity, not a 6502 assembler. But, yeah, the Lawless Legends will be fantastic, and I'm looking forward to getting my hands on it. So Lawless Legends is coming out. Something that isn't, or probably not, is the history of Sierra Online, in documentary form. This is a Kickstarter that recently ended. It, uh, let me pull up the actual Kickstarter. <clears throat> they were looking for $125,000 by August 5th, and they got about a fifth of that, about $28,000 and change. And this is actually their second Kickstarter. They did one about a year ago for even less than that, and they failed at that. So I don't know why they said, oh, let's go back and raise more money. I mean, Charles, even you know not to do that. <laughs> so these guys were doing a documentary called Heroes, the History of Sierra Online. And in the time between the first and second Kickstarter, it looks like they actually conducted their interviews and the film is shot and they just need to edit it and produce it. Mm-hmm. I really shouldn't use the word just when I say that because that is a vast undertaking that requires more than just iMovie. You, you need a lot of resources and a lot of skill and a lot of time to put together a film that you've already shot. So I'm not undermining the vastness of their task, but still, I think they were a little bit ambitious. Nonetheless, when I saw that the Kickstarter was about to end and fail, I threw in my 30 bucks for a Blu-ray copy of the film, primarily because I knew I wouldn't get it. I had cautioned backing this film because uh, there wasn't a lot of personality to the trailer. You really don't know much about the people who are making the film, and I'd like to know who those people are. And I was also a little concerned after consulting with a friend of mine that the film might just sort of be superficial and not necessarily reveal anything we don't already know. Uh, For example, there are some fantastic history of Apple II games on Jimmy Mayer's website. We interviewed him earlier this year, and he's done some great work on that stuff. So I'm not sure what a documentary would show that we don't already. But nonetheless, if the film's already shot, I kind of do wish that we'd get to see the footage, and I hope the film comes out in one form or another, but I've not heard any updates from them saying, okay, we failed on this backing, we're going to look for other ways to do it. But they, they did say when the Kickstarter failed back on August 5th, we want to reassure everyone that this film will be made and it will be great. And they have a Twitter and a Facebook that they're supposed to be keeping updated. But we'll see. Did either of you follow this Kickstarter? They only have 43 likes on Facebook, by the way. That's pretty lame. You can tell how popular you are by your Facebook. I didn't think Ken and Roberta were going to be involved just because I, I, from everything I've heard, they don't like talking about Sierra Online. They're, they did that. They moved on with their lives. They're not interested anymore, but it looks like they actually did get the interviews. 
hmm. uh, with them. So <clears throat> that's even more of a reason for this trailer to, for this film to come out because it features rather rare interviews. Right hmm. now, not knowing a lot about filmmaking, I I hesitate to say that. Oh, the hard part's already done. They've gotten the interviews. They've gotten all. They've talked to all the people that they want to talk to. Obviously, there's a lot of work still to go, but it's just a matter of really the time and effort to do it. So they didn't make the money that they were hoping to get. And I imagine that the reason they increased the amount that they were asking for was because they had uh, adjusted their expectations based on uh, <laughs> reality. <laughs> the uh, the cost of, the cost of renting equipment and all all that and recouping thing recouping costs that they've already uh, I'm sure already uh, uh, paid out for travel and and all that sort of thing but at this point they've got everything that they need except for the time to do the editing so whether it comes out whether they get the funding now and it comes out in six months or a year. Or they do it in dribs and drabs as they get time and, and money, and it comes out in five years. I, I'm confident that it'll happen because they've they've done the part that they can't. You know, if if these people die or move on or change their minds, they've already got the footage, so they've got the part that they needed to get. Okay, so this next statement here is directed to Jason Scott, since I know he's listening to this. Uh, you can go ahead and write directly to Charles about everything that you disagree with what he just said. <laughs> now, I did preface with, I am not a filmmaker and I don't know a lot about <laughs> making films, but I would imagine that if they were to give up and say, okay, we, we obviously can't do it. We're going to, you know, we have day jobs. You know, here is the footage. Someone else could do it. Oh, yeah. No, I was, I was just sort of being playful with you. And, mm -hmm. but you're right. In fact, um, not to, well, here we go to the, to the Jason Scott segment. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> If they were to just get in contact with him, even if he didn't, he probably doesn't have time to edit that stuff in himself. And in fact, I think he's written a couple of blog posts about that. I'm quite certain that he could put them in contact with people who can and would be willing to do it for a significantly less amount of money. Well, but those people would still require money to do it. <laughs> yeah, maybe. It's probably their day jobs to do that sort of thing. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember what film it was, but I do recall that there was a documentary that Jason Scott did end up editing. Yeah, cardboard? Besides that, there was Lorian Green's Going Cardboard documentary all about board games, but I think that there was another one that was like about hackerspaces maybe, hmm. that Jason Scott got involved with because that was the only way it was going to get done. Jason and, and people like him are able to make, make this happen. There's nobody like Jason. <laughs> well, that's true. But that reminds me of another documentary called 8-Bit Generation, which was supposed to come out about a year and a half ago. Yeah, whatever happened to that? <sighs> well, that's a great question. Jason did a blog post about that, saying that you know it was all set, it was ready to go, it looked gorgeous, and then the producers just disappeared and never released any product or even any footage other than the trailers. Mm, that's disappointing. It's very disappointing. Jason is disappointed because it looked like it was going to be good, and some of these interviews are with hard-to-reach people or people who are no longer with us, and now it's just gone. I'm upset for all those reasons on top of the fact that I pre-ordered the film and never got a refund. Yeah, do you have any recourse with a Kickstarter if somebody just up and disappears with your money? I don't know the answer to that question because this documentary was not Kickstarter-backed. Mm. I actually went right to their website and... 
you know, paid via PayPal for a copy of the film when it was released. Gotcha. With regards to the Kickstarter question, no, you at least in the original terms, you you had no, there was no uh, refund or hmm. legal recourse if someone raised money for a non-existent thing. There may be no arbitration coming from Kickstarter, but I believe their terms of service do say that you may be liable for legal recourse should you renege on your project. So, in other words, if you're going to do this, people might sue you if you don't ship. Mm -hmm. Yes, but okay. there wasn't any. But there was nothing ever written into the terms of by Kickstarter to say if you fail within a certain amount of time to deliver, you have to refund based on terms of service or you know, or these people can, uh, the arbitration is yada, yada, yada. But no, none of that was ever in, in the terms uh, on Kickstarter's end. You're right. The, the, the individuals may be able to pursue legal action, but not, uh, through Kickstarter. And Kickstarter has since clarified and discouraged people from expecting products to ship on time by saying Kickstarter is not a store and you should not expect that you are pre-ordering a product. You are pledging to make something come to life. Mm -hmm. And you can't sue for something coming out late. Right. If a guy actually takes your money and runs away, then, yeah. Like you pre-ordering a movie through their website with the expectation that you'd get a movie at the end that suddenly they took your money and ran... There have been isolated incidents of actual scams setting up on Kickstarter where mm -hmm. the guy had no intention of creating a product and yet he was asking money for it. Mm -hmm. And those well, I was, projects... I was trying to get back to the, the was it 8-bit generation? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sure you're not the only one that pre-ordered and was wondering where their uh, their DVDs are. I'm told some people got refunds, but for some reason I didn't. And I'm getting no responses from the director, Tommaso Walliser. Mm. And PayPal can't do anything because the pre-order was so long ago. Right. In fact, there's an article on Mashable about how the biggest scam in Kickstarter history almost works. And it goes into detail about how that sort of thing works and, and what happens to your money. Yeah, fortunately, they caught Charles in time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I never present anything until I have a prototype that's working. And that's, again, that's, a, that's another one of their new rules. You can't just put a, a, a 3D rendering of something with, you know... The, uh, the expectation that it will work in the physical world. No, it has <laughs> to have, if, you, if you're going to produce a physical project, a product that it, it has to have a prototype. Well, whether or not that's a rule, that's also a great way to actually get people to pledge because you inspire confidence by showing an actual product. Plus, that's one of the best rewards is an actual copy of what they are pledging to create. Right. Well, moving on from products that may or may not exist, courtesy the pledges of people such as myself, us naive saps, let's talk about some real products that have come out from Kansas Fest, and we have three to talk about. One is, well, actually, we have two parties that have released products. The first party is me, and that would be Juice GS. We are going to be publishing in 2014. That will be our 19th annual volume, and my 9th annual volume as editor. And we, uh, the prices have not gone up. You can pre-order your subscription for the calendar year 2014 on the JuiceGS website. JuiceGS slash subscribe is the actual website. And we also have three new concentrates, which are PDFs of previously published JuiceGS material from our hard copy editions. We didn't release any concentrates last year after announcing the line, I think, in 2011 or 2010. 
and these PDFs are how to get started with the Apple II, how to program in Logo, and the history and state of interactive fiction. So those are all available for sale in our store. You can actually get JuiceGS in PDF format, courtesy of the Concentrate line. I know, really. Uh, let's see. Another new product is from Eric Sheppy Shepard, and he released a massive update to Suite 16, that being version 3.0. And true to his prediction that somebody at Kansas Fest would find a bug, it is now at version 3.0.1. And the biggest feature that he has introduced is one that Burning to the Rescue had a decade ago, and it's finally available in Suite 16, and that is the ability to drag and drop files between the Apple II and the Mac environment. No Sweet. more using disk images in MS-DOS format to go out and HFS to go in. Actually, it's just the opposite, but whatever. So has that have either of you upgraded to version 3? Not yet. No, I really have stayed away from the GS because I... I Never had one when I was growing up, so I'm not terribly familiar with it. Uh, maybe as I delve more into the hardware, I'll, I'll learn a little bit more about the hard, the the software, and want to do more in emulation. But um, the the GS is just too new for me. Fancy, <laughs> all those fancy color graphics and things. Yeah, you know the the cutting edge of 1986. Just it's kind of scary. I've always wondered if the modern Apple II community has more 8-bit or 16-bit users. Well, if you're a 16-bit user, I guess technically you're an 8-bit user because you do have basically an Apple IIe in your in your 2GS. That's true, but I don't see folks like Sheppy releasing many 8-bit projects. He certainly did in the past with stuff like Trailblazers, but no, his stuff tends to be stuff like SideClick or Shifty List or... Uh, pro, not Pro Boot. Um, di- Disk Maker and Image Maker. Mm-hmm. And then you have you know eight bit programmers like Ivan Drucker and Martin Hay, who I don't really see releasing sixteen bit stuff. So it it seems kind of people fall into camps, and there isn't a lot of overlap. Certainly, they all get along together. But I, Are you sure there's not pitchforks and torches and things at Kansas Fest late at night? I think the rivalry we only find at Kansas Fest is bite the bag. Send out your Sheppy. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, and Atari and Commodore users are barred the door. Yeah, well, we did let Kevin Savitz in. Right. And we did let uh, Mike Whalen in. Who had never touched an Apple II until like two days before Kansas Fest. Yep. And yet he still came and he had an amazing time. And he learned how to solder. That's right. And, Invaluable. Uh, yeah. So Sweet 16 is out, version 3.0.1, and Sheppy has produced his own version of the X Prize, which I believe was originally founded to get a private commercialized spaceship launched <laughs> and uh, providing millions of dollars as an incentive to be the first one to do so. All run with a, a all run from ground control by an Apple II GS. Is that true? Emulated. Oh, I believe that. <laughs> so no, Sheppy is not trying to send us into outer space. Some of us are already there. His prize is more modest. It's a couple hundred dollars, and it is to get, I believe, the Samba protocol working on an Apple II SMB. This is because there are some ways to network an Apple II with modern machines, but it requires 
like an Ethernet card or a Linux machine or Apple Talk, which may or may not be supported by modern Macs, I guess Sheppy's a little frustrated with all these different kludges that we need to deal with. Granted, some of them are remarkable and elegant, such as Ivan Drucker, but they still, uh, his work with the Raspberry Pi and A2 server and the like, but it still has certain requirements that Sheppy wishes were not required. So he has created the S Prize. And he's created a website for it, s-prize.gs. And you get all the details about what this competition entails, what the requirements are to succeed and be deemed the winner, and what exactly the prize is. It's pretty cool. I recommend you check it out. S-Prize, bringing modern file sharing to the Apple IIgs. Anybody here going to undertake it? Not me. Nor I. No. <laughs> if I can't do it with an Arduino and a serial port, it's probably not. It's probably beyond my uh, beyond my expertise. Well, we are happy to be supporting you, Sheppy, in every way that we can't. Sorry. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I'll 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 pitch in a couple of uh, a couple of bucks to the to the pot, I guess, or to the, the pool. The pool. Sure. Well, that's good of you. I don't know. Let, let me check this website. Is he actively soliciting? Yeah, it says uh, pledge now. There's an entire page just for that. Wow. I totally misspoke when I said it was a couple hundred dollars. It's currently up to $1,800, almost 2000 And he has a pledge list of people who are supporting this so far. And it's several dozen names. Uh, Devin Reed, Andrew Malloy, Dagan Brock, Wayne Arthurton, David Schmidt, Eric Rucker. Wow. And it, wow, it even lists their amount, so you can tell who's rich and who's not. <laughs> huh. So anyway... Yeah, check it out. If uh, you want to, you can contribute in a variety of ways. And, you know, maybe I'll have to dig into my wallet and see if I can find anything. Cool. And that's, there were other announcements from Kansas Fest, but as we said, most of them have already been announced elsewhere, and we don't want to OD you, but those are some of the things that are significant or have, which have come out since K-Fest. Let's move on to something that went out, that being Lewis Kornfeld. Mike, do you want to talk about that? <laughs> that's an interesting way to put that. Hey, these transitions after 30 episodes, it's getting tough. Yeah. That's a professional I, segue once again. I understand. Yep. Uh, yeah, so Lewis Kornfeld uh, of Radio Shack has died, and that's not directly Apple II related, really. He was the president of Radio Shack, and it was his efforts to make sure that um, the TRS-80 got made um, and became one of the big three uh, of 1977, along with the Apple II and the Commodore PET, so our sincere somethings to the Radio Shack fans out there. Yeah, first Steve Jobs, then Jack Trammell, now Lewis Kornfeld. This is not a good time for the pillars of this industry. Fortunately, based on his appearance at Kansas Fest, I would say Steve Wozniak is in pretty darn good shape. Yeah, for a while there, every time I saw Steve Jobs in public, he was getting skinnier and skinnier. And every time I saw Steve Wozniak, he was getting heavier oh. and heavier. <laughs> <laughs> you thought he was eating Steve Jobs slowly? No, it was just some sort of, like, I don't know, energy vampire kind of thing. I don't know <laughs> what was going on, but it was just kind of, it, I just noticed it. And then um, I think it was after Dancing with the Stars or, or there was some something that... Uh, yeah, it was Janet. Yeah, it must have been. She's got him on a diet. Yeah, he started getting uh, looking a little bit more fit and having a little bit more energy. Yep, that's, that's Janet's doing. Good. Good hmm. for him. So farewell, Lewis. Yes, and thank you for... Providing the Apple II with such a worthy contemporary. <laughs> what? I'm not being sarcastic. Oh, okay. Well, only because I've never actually touched a TRS-80, so I can't speak from experience. I don't know what it did to earn the name Trash-80 and the exact uh, 
reputation of the machine is beyond the scope of this podcast, so let us just let both the machine and its creator rest in peace. eBay. Now, I thought we had retired the eBay section. We did, but we're doing it in the news section. I see. So from now on, we're only going to be talking about items of weirdness or, or special interest for the Apple II community. I think that's I think that's what we decided on. We're not talking about stuff that people are going to go bid on because by the time we get the show out, it's too late for them to bid on it. But do we have anything of interest this month? Well, uh, there's a couple of items, I guess. One that got a whole lot of press and one not so much. Um, another Apple One sold this one for $387,750. Such a deal. Yes. Uh, this was sold by Christie's in an online-only auction. Uh, it ran for, I think, 14 days. It looks like only one or two bids and is... Just another Apple One selling, I guess. Yeah. Pretty much everybody if, that wants one has one by now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If anybody thinks this sounds familiar, that's because we didn't do a standard show in August, and so this auction occurred immediately after our July episode. It sold around July 9th. Yes. Yeah, I, I mean, we got to play with an Apple One at Kansas Fest, by the way. We didn't really talk much about that, but that was awesome. Yeah, that was that was neat. I, I was walking through the, the common area of... Of the of Corcoran Hall at, at Rockhurst, and there's this guy sitting there with his bags and a box and his hat, and I've and he asked where he was asking about Tony and Waz, and so I figured well, he was a Waz tourist. He heard online or something that Waz was here, and it turns out that in this this Dell server box was an Apple One computer in working condition. Right. Yeah, I saw him waiting to register. I'm like, oh, a latecomer, cool. Yep. And I. Didn't really even notice the big box. Then later on, I came back, and somebody told me there was an Apple One, and I was like, who brought an Apple One? I'm like, it's that guy, which is amazing. <laughs> we already talked all about that open Antichrist, but yeah, that was not something I expected to do in my life. And there was another amazing Apple sale, and by amazing, I mean redonkulous, and that was just your plain old run-of-the-mill first revision Apple II. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a Revision Zero Apple II. It's another one of the the ventless, very very early machines. Uh, this one was serial number zero one forty eight. Now this may sound familiar, uh, especially when we tell you that it sold for twenty four thousand ninety nine dollars. Um, but this is that's because we talked about a different Apple One serial number zero zero four seven, which sold a month ago for twenty three thousand ninety nine dollars. Huh? Why why are they going for such similar amounts? I wonder. It's what the market will bear. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Well, I think the, the main selling point for this one really is the simulated leather carrying bag that it comes with. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's not just the CPU, the disk two drives, um, the grappler card. No, it has the simulated leather bag. Um, Which really the, is all, all a, a collector really wants. Mm -hmm. And that's worth an extra $1,000. Sure. Well, hey, you know, if you got money to burn, what's a little mm -hmm. bit more? Phew. Wish I had that kind of money. Of course, I wouldn't buy leather. It's against my morals. Well, it's, simula it's simulated leather. You'd buy pleather. Oh, yeah. I, I would totally buy a pleather bag. That's rocking. Well, on the on the subject of eBay, I, I have to say that... <laughs> I thought you were going to go on the subject of pleather. No, pleather is another topic entirely. But there's um there are sellers like this that have a... Uh, 
you know, they have a an item that they think that the obviously it's sold for twenty four grand, so somebody's going to buy it for twenty four grand, whether it's for a museum or something like that. They have something that they think is worth a whole lot, and they're going to sell it, and they're not going to take any less than you know twenty grand or whatever. But then on the other hand, there's um, and this is something you can put in the show notes. I'll send you a link to it. Um, a full, amazing collection of uh, 2GS drives, um, display, and a whole slew of software and manuals and everything. Just this huge collection, what was probably an estate sale of someone that owned this and collected it and, and had all, you know, the original owner, I'm sure. And it's an ongoing auction. That rather than asking some outrageous, you know, $20,000 for this huge collection of, you know, vintage, original, rare, exclamation point, Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, uh, uh, stuff. It's very reasonably priced and well-documented. And their starting bid was like $10 for this whole thing. And obviously it's gotten much higher than that, but that's because of the natural bidding process, as opposed to just putting it out online saying, I'm not going to take any less than 25 grand. Well, I agree with you, um, but I will say that this Apple II was actually listed with a starting price of fifty dollars. Oh, it was okay. Yes, all I saw the was, other one, All I saw was the selling price of twenty four thousand. Yeah, the, the one that we talked about last month had a starting price of a thousand dollars, which mm-hmm. is probably a little high. Uh, okay. But this one starting price of fifty bucks, and uh, it went right up into the thousands of dollars stratosphere. Okay. See, I all I all I saw was the was the selling price. I thought that it was a. It was just a sale, not a not sure, an auction. Sure, sure. It's it's a no, it's it's a logical assumption to make, especially on a place like eBay. Yeah. Well, he, the uh, I'm going to send you this link, but it's a Apple II GS Waz Edition monitor, floppy hard drive games, and it's got dozens of pictures. Um, and the starting bid was ten dollars. Sweet. I was like that's that's pretty great, you know. Yep. You You're not you're not just gonna uh, you're not thinking you're going to retire from this thing. He might still, but <laughs> it's mm-hmm. uh it's a great lot and it's sort of an instant uh collection for somebody. There's you know, there's two different kinds of sellers on eBay, obviously. Right. Yep, and it's it's nice to know that there are still a few good deals to to be had or at least to, to, to be discovered out there if you want to spend the time looking for them. So Charles, I understand that your wife is becoming a little less understanding at this hour. <laughs> <laughs> she is, and uh my daughter, who is uh five months old, is teething and so she has probably had just about well they have probably just had just about enough of each other <laughs> um so i i will uh I, I may just need to sign off here i think we've had our fill of you as well it's time to let somebody else get a shot <laughs> well it's been great having you on the show charles this is a nice follow up to kansas fest and i hope that we can keep the communication lines open as you continue to work on these products i hope you'll keep us in the loop about what's coming down the pipeline Absolutely. You're the, uh, the first, you'll be the first to hear when I have a working prototype and, uh, have had it tested and, and, you know, blown up a, a couple of, a <laughs> couple more CPUs. But yes, the, the next few projects, uh, they may not be rolling off the assembly line just yet, but certainly before the end of the year. And most definitely I'll have something else to bring with me for, uh, KFS 2014. I want to point out that on your website for the Retro Connector, you actually quote me as saying, shut up and take my money, 
which in turn I was quoting Fry from Futurama. Mm-hmm. And I feel a little bad that I haven't given you my money. And the reason for that is because the only Apple II I own, I only own one of them, is a 2GS. And you don't have any products yet that will work on that. But as soon as you do, this is true. you can shut up and take my money. <laughs> if you want, I will take your money. It's just nothing Nothing right now is going to work with the GS. <laughs> there's, I've tried. Uh, there's, there's some modifications still to do for the USB keyboard interface mm. to make it work with a GS through the keyboard port, the, the sort of vestigial Apple IIe keyboard port that's on the logic board. There's something that's different the way that uh, the GS posts and whether it detects the keyboard or not versus the 2e i'm sure there's there's probably a matter of uh just a voltage difference or a a resistor that i need to add in in line or something like that but once i do that i'll post some instructions and maybe make a kit available for people that are not afraid to solder on their their 2gs logic board in order to get a usb keyboard attached to it sounds like a plan man it's kind of an elaborate way to sell a few more boards but uh, if people want it, I'll do it. <laughs> How devious. I'll probably have the USB to ADB adapter, which I'm sure there's some out there that you can use before that. <laughs> but if you want, you can you can solder away. Sounds like fun. Cool. I'll keep my eyes peeled. All right. Well, thanks for being on the show, Charles, of Option cool. 8. We appreciate it. And where can we find you online? Um, the easiest place to find me is mentalhygiene.com. Excellent, and you're on tw- and you're on Twitter, sir. I'm on Twitter at option eight. That's the number eight. Yes, O P T I O N and the number eight. Excellent. Um, but uh, you can find Retro Connector and RetroConnector.com. Um, just follow me on Twitter, and I'll eventually uh, send out links to everything because I'm a shameless self promoter. Somebody's got to do it. All right. Well, thank you, man, and we will see you around. And I hope at Kansas Fest 2014. Thank you, and uh, if you ever need a a seat warmer again, uh, I'll be glad to to join in. We'll keep that in mind. Thanks, man. Thank you. Thanks, Charles. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. Yeah, I made a George and Lenny reference to a friend of mine the other day, and she didn't get it. I'm like, don't you know of Mice and Men? And she said, I never saw the movie. (laughs) I'm like, it's John Steinbeck. It's a book. (laughs) Pick one up someday. Hello again. Hi. I never realized that George and Lenny was from Of Mice and Men. Did you think it was Bugs Bunny? I Honestly, that's where (laughs) I first encountered it. Hang up on him right now, Ken. Was Bugs Bunny. And then, then of course, much later, because I was nine or whatever, uh, mm-hmm. when I was watching Bugs Bunny, it was much later that I actually saw the movie and read the book. And oh, oh! And then you know, I went back and watched the Bugs Bunny cartoons again and realized how terribly racist they are, and uh, <laughs> you know, kind of despised myself for liking them. But I love the cartoons. You know, it's Bugs Bunny blowing stuff up. There's a lot of those kind of things that I didn't discover until I was an adult that I was totally missing the reference. And sometimes, Charles, I think you still are.